section known as the Sermon on the Mount. And today we're going to cover Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 12. And I'm not sure how far we'll go, but by the end of May, I guess, uh, we will probably be in chapter 10 or 12 or so, and then we will do our Psalms in the summer. And we'll start at Psalm 42, and we'll do about 15 of those, and then, then we'll come back to Matthew, okay? So, Matthew 7, 1 through 12 tells us how to relate to sinners, uh, both saved and lost. Okay, both saved and lost. And that chapter opens with a command. Notice what it says. Judge not. Uh, who are we not to judge? Well, when you look at the context in verses 2 and 3, you're going to discover that we're not to judge other believers in Christ. In other words, we're not to look at other believers and evaluate their lives in such a way that it can that it's uh, a condemnation upon them. That word judge there actually means condemnation. And so we're not to condemn other brothers and sisters in the Lord. We're not to find fault in them. <clears throat> One reason is because God doesn't find fault in them. They've been forgiven. Do they have fault? have no fault. And we're not to set ourselves up as uh, critics. Some of us feel we have the gift of criticism. It's one of the, it's like the, the 23rd gift of the Holy Spirit or something. Now, I want to ask you a question. I want to find out whether you've really been listening to anything over the past 10 years, okay? Why do you think Jesus would have to give this command, judge not? Anybody have an idea? That's right, because they're judging. <laughs> now, when you see these kinds of commands, these aren't given in, in like in out of in a vacuum, you know, for no reason at all. They're given because something's happening. So, one of the ways that we could uh, interpret this would be stop your judging. Now, why are we not to judge? Well, one reason is because that's God's job. And when we judge, we usurp God's authority and we, put, we take on a divine prerogative that's not ours. See? And so he says, don't judge. Now let me ask you another question. Why do you think Matthew included that command in his gospel? Because if you go to the other gospels, you don't find this command necessarily. You see, when, when Luke... Luke includes a Sermon on the Mount. It's called Sermon on the Plain there. It's, he doesn't give it from the Mount... He actually gives it on a plane, Jesus does. Which means that he said some of these things on numerous occasions when he taught in different locations. But guess what? You don't find all the exact same commands <clears throat> in each situation. Why do you think Matthew, because remember what John says, if we recorded everything that Jesus did, we need a whole library of books. Remember when he said that? He said all the books and the, all the libraries in the world couldn't contain all that Jesus did. So that means that Jesus did a lot more than we have written here, and each gospel writer had to choose which one of those events and teachings he was going to include. So why do you think Matthew chose to include this? Uh, because he's writing to churches 
50 years after Jesus has lived. And guess what kind of problems they're facing? The same thing. So he takes this event in Jesus' life, or this teaching, and he puts it in his gospel so that his people, 30, 40, 50 years later, who are reading this, and guess what? 2,000 years later who are reading this, will learn the lesson that we're not to judge. So our job is not to judge. In fact, as we said in the Beatitudes, which tells you the kind of person God blesses, he says, blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. So what should we be? We should be merciful. That's how God is, and that's how we should be. We should be merciful. Now you see why you shouldn't judge. This is very interesting. He says, judge not, in verse 1, that you be not judged, so that in order that you're not judged. By whom? By God. Don't you judge, or guess what? One day, God is going to judge you. Now, this is one of the themes that we have in the Sermon on the Mount. When we forgive, God forgives us. When we judge, God judges us. Uh, so, he says that we shouldn't judge because... We don't want to be judged. And uh, so the fact that one day we're going to stand before God and we're going to give an account of our lives should motivate our behavior in the present. The future should motivate our present actions. And so this is one of the themes that you see throughout the Gospel of Matthew. And then he says this in verse 2. <clears throat> For with what judgment you, you judge, you will be judged. And with what measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Uh, there is a uh, principle of reciprocity here. Uh, we saw it in the Lord's Prayer. Remember that? Forgive us our debts, what? As we forgive those. Right? To the same degree, to the same measure. That's the same thing here. To the degree that we judge others, that's to the degree that God judges us. To the degree that we forgive others, that's the degree that God forgives us. Now, Jesus isn't saying that we should never look at a person's life and uh, just we should just ignore sin in the person's life. He's not talking about that. He just said you don't condemn the person. There's a difference between realizing that, hey, this is a person who's doing things in their lives that are wrong... There's nothing wrong with giving people advice. There's nothing wrong with coming alongside of them. There's nothing wrong with even gently correcting them. But there's a difference between correction and condemnation. Jesus is talking about condemnation. We're not to be judgmental. So many Christians are judgmental. We're not to be judgmental. We're to be merciful and we should be saying... Except for the grace of God. That's me. So we have Christians that are involved in all kinds of things for different reasons. Uh, they get trapped in a situation. They give in to a temptation. And what they need is they need someone to long, come alongside and help them, not judge them. Okay? So that's what he's talking about. Now I'm going to give you an illustration of that. <clears throat> Remember when Nathan comes to David. And here's what he says. He said, I've got a, got a question for you. I need some advice. There's this rich man 
And this rich man's going to have a great big spread, a feast, for some very influential friends. And he doesn't want to take one of, he wants to give the best food because these are important people. But he doesn't want to take one of his own lambs and kill it. <laughs> that costs him too much. So he goes out and he steals one from a poor person. And he kills it and he feeds his guest with somebody else's property. And uh, Nathan says, what do you think should happen to that guy? And David says, he should beat him! And goes crazy. You know, and Nathan says, thou art the man. Remember that story? Remember what he was referring to? He stole another man's wife. So here was David willing to condemn somebody else in Israel, according to Nathan. And uh, instead of saying, well, you know, we need to go and see what the situation is, he condemns him, but in condemning the other man, guess what he actually does? Condemns himself. By judging the other man, judgment comes upon him. So this is what Jesus is teaching. And you discover that when we look at the Beatitudes and we look at the Sermon on the Mount, in many ways Jesus is not teaching anything totally new. He's building on the things that the Jewish people understood for centuries. They entered into a covenant of God and God said, here's how you're to treat people that are part of the nation of Israel. Here's how you to uh, have how your relationship should work out with other Jewish people brothers and sisters, and uh, they just didn't do it. And Jesus is just calling them back to really living the way God wants them to live. So then he asks two rhetorical questions. So look at that in verse 3. <clears throat> Here's what he says. Why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not consider the plank in your own eye? Why do you do that? And uh, there's no really... Uh, I guess you could say, well, you shouldn't, is the answer. Well, you shouldn't do that, but why do people do that? Uh, notice the language that he uses. He says, speck. You know, you get a little, little piece of dust in your eye, and you know how that bothers you, and you can't see. But it's small, and you know it's going to get out of there. And then he uses the word plank, which is a two-by-four. Okay? So why do we look at specks in other people's eyes when we've got a plank in our own eye? And the answer is because, ah, that's easier, that's right. We're self-righteous. Yeah, we're hypocritical. Uh, we want to condemn them for that little thing when we do things that are far worse. You know, uh, we want to be self-important. We're going to point that situation out. Oh, did you look like We do that on Sundays. And we say, oh, I wish so-and-so were here to... Hear that sermon? He really needed that one, or she needed that one. <coughs> Yay, man, that's right. <laughs> now, Jesus is using speck and the plank in, uh, in ex as an exaggeration. This is hyperbole. Obviously, no one can have a two-by-four in their eye. That is very strange to have one in your eye. I've heard of two-by-fours coming off of trucks and when you're riding down the highway, breaks through your you know, windshield and, you know, severs the person's body. But I've never heard of a two-by-four in a person's eye. Eye's only about that big, two-by-four is that big. So that would really be something. But Jesus is using exaggeration to drive home a point. So, here's the question. 
Why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but you do not consider the plague in your own eye? And if your brother has a speck and you have a plank, well, first of all, you wouldn't be able to see the other. You wouldn't be able to see the speck, would you? No, because you got a plank in your eye, and that's that's a big thing. Jesus is making a comparison. Why do you look at other people's problems, minor problems, when your problems are major problems? That's what he's saying here. Why do you do that? And then he said this, and how can you say, this is question number two, how can you say to your brother, uh, let me remove the speck from your eye and look, a plank is in your own eye. How can you do that? And the answer is you can't. Because if I have a plank in my eye, I can't see the speck in the other person's eye. You know the doctors, when they operate on eyes, they use microscopes and everything? In order to see those specks? I've never seen a doctor say, let me look at that speck in this eye. I have to get that speck out of that person's eye. And he said, well, hey, well I, I don't need a, I need a plank. Anybody have a plank? <clears throat> That'll help me look at that speck a little bit. No. If I put a mask over my face, guess how what I can see? I can see nothing. So if you have a plank in your eye, guess what you can see? Nothing. See? And so he says, how can you see the speck when you've got the plank in your own eye? And the answer is you can't. And I can prove it to you because every one of us has played pin the tail on the donkey, you haven't played. And you know when your eyes are covered, you're disoriented and you just can't see, even though the donkey's tail is only three feet in front of you, you can put that tail, or the donkey's rear end, whatever you call it, <laughs> it's three feet in front, you can put that tail in many strange places. So anyway, that shows you how foolish it is for us to judge others. That's all Jesus is saying. You shouldn't judge others. That's not your job. Now, God could judge others. He doesn't have any planks in his eyes. He's the only one that has a right to judge others. It's foolish for you to think you could judge another person. Condemn another person. So then he gives some instructions. Look what he says in verse 5. Hypocrite. That's, that's what it is. Hypocrite. You're playing like you're righteous, but you're not. All you're doing is wearing a mask. Hypocrite. First, <clears throat> remove the plank from your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. In other words, first of all, deal with your own shortcomings before you start judging other people. And you know something? If I had, if I said, oh, I see a speck in this guy's eye, but you know, I really need to look at see how I, what my eye is like. And I look in the mirror, and there's a great big two by four, a plank hanging out. I said, Whoa! Look at that. And then if I pull that two by four out, and there it is. Oh, look at that thing. And then I look at my brother's eye and I see the speck. And, oh, that's not so bad. Now Jesus isn't talking about specks and two by fours, is he? He's just using a literary device to drive home a point. And that is, don't condemn people. Don't judge. Now there is an exception. And he's going to deal with that exception. And uh, there are lost people that you can tell that they're lost people. And uh, he says you need to be able to discern. You need to be able to judge people. But not inside the church. 
The difference ain't outside the church. So look what he says in verse 6. Do not... This is the second command. Notice the first command, verse 1. Judge not. Look at the second command. Do not. Now this is dealing with lost people. <clears throat> Do not give what is holy to the dogs, nor cast your pearls before swine. Okay, so what does this mean? Well, is he talking about literal dogs? Literal pigs? Literal pearls? No, he again is using literary devices. He's using figures of speech, metaphors. He's talking about people, isn't he? But let's think of it on the literal level for a second. He says, don't give that which is holy to dogs. Okay, well, uh, the holy here would be the holy sacrifices or food that you would take and you would uh, make sacrifices to God. That's the holy, that which is sacred. Sacred food. You know, they made sacrifices to God, didn't they? That's lambs and all this. Holy food. Don't give that to a dog. You wouldn't feed the dog. Look, when you give God a sacrifice in the Old Testament, would you give him the best or would you give him the least? You give him the best. Well, you don't feed dog filet mignon if you have good sense. Well, it's not even if you... It's, you know, it really wouldn't matter if you fed the dog filet mignon. He wouldn't say, hmm, I wonder if that's... Uh, Choice or prime? <laughs> I think he would say that or select. You know, uh, dogs don't really appreciate good stuff. They eat their own vomit. In fact, that shows you their appetite. <laughs> See, you can give the dog hamburger, you can give them horse meat, you can give them—they just eat anything. You wouldn't give something really good to a dog because a dog just doesn't appreciate. And neither would you give a string. A thousand dollar pearls to a pig. You know, I've never, now I've been around quite a while, not as long as Jim Wright, but I've been around quite a while. <laughs> and uh, I have yet to see, I've never seen a pig with a set of pearls on yet. Now, because you know what pigs really like? They like to wallow in the mud. They don't like to get dressed up. Because they're pigs. So here's what Jesus said. You don't give sacred food, the best food, stuff that you'd reserve for God to a dog, and you wouldn't give, certainly give a set of pearls to a pig. And they didn't have artificial pearls back in those days. These are the good ones, right? So, but he's not talking about pigs and dogs. Who's he talking about? People. People. And so he says, you know, sometimes you do have to judge. You have to put people in categories. And dogs, were, the dogs that he's describing here are the, the wild pack of dogs uh, that roamed the streets of Jerusalem uh, that uh, you know, were scavengers and they would turn on you and they would attack people. They were very dangerous. Uh, those kind of dogs just eat whatever. They eat garbage. You know. And pigs were unclean animals. So he's talking about people. You don't, and what is what are the pearls and what are the sacred things? Probably the gospel. He's talking about people, and he's talking about probably the gospel. He says, so you don't give, let's say, sacred truth and the gospel to people like who are like dogs, and you don't give the richness of the Christ gospel to people who are like swines. 
lest they trample them underfoot and turn, this is what the wild dogs do, they turn and tear you to pieces. So you do not give the gospel to people who count it as worthless, who do not find it valuable, who when you share the gospel with them, attack you, want you arrested, want you killed. You have to discern that. Now this is the national day for atheists. You know there's some atheists that you share the gospel with, what will they do if you share the gospel with them? They just cuss you out, laugh at you, mock. Jesus says you have to know when to share and when not to share. Now it's not that you never try to share, but once you see the person's attitude, there's a time to stop. I have students coming up to me and they'll say, what should I do if I start sharing the gospel and someone says, get off my porch and I'm going to... I said, well, you get off the porch. You do what Jesus said. What do you tell the disciples? Shake the dust off your feet and say, you're condemned. Wow. So there is a time... There's a time to judge. Now, you wouldn't do that with every lost person, because some people will listen, some people will respectful, some people can have a dialogue with you, maybe even a debate, and that's fine, but he's not talking about those kind of people. He's talking about that small minority of people who really have no value whatsoever for you or the gospel. And it takes judgment to do that. How do you know when to judge, and how do you know when not to judge? It's a hard thing, isn't it? When do I judge and when do I not judge in that situation? Well, it's very interesting. The next thing he talks about is prayer. Now, in verses 7 through 11, he's going to talk about the need to pray. And uh, he could just be changing the subject. He could be just talking about, now let me talk, I've talked about that for a while, now let me talk about prayer. And he does that a lot in the Sermon on the Mount. Or he could be relating this prayer to those circumstances that we've just read about. So let's take a look and see what he says. So here's what it says. Ask and it will be given to you. Now think of it in the context of what we've been reading. And also think of it as just normal prayer. And let's just see what, what kind of conclusion we can come to, if any. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For 82% of the people who ask receive... I think it says something like that. Oh, that's the reserved standard Bible. Right there. And everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks it will be opened. Now, here's a command. Notice there's a command here. It's ask, seek, and knock. He tells us to do it, and to do it continuously. So, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. Why should you ask? Look, verse 8. Because everyone who asks, what? Receives. You're going to get an answer. That's why you should ask. No one's turned away in this situation. He who seeks, finds. No one's turned away. You'll get your, you'll, you'll find your answer. And he who knocks, it will be opened. Now, if he's talking about how do you know when to judge, how do you know when to discern, well, here's how you can do it. Or he could be just talking about prayer, and he could be talking about 
our daily needs being met and whatever the situation is. But we do see three levels here. The ask means to make a request. I ask you something, that makes a Seek is a little more intensive, isn't it? Seek something is a little more, I have to be a little more aggressive. And then to start knocking means I'm really concerned because guess what? There's been no answer. So you see these three levels, okay? So what is he saying here? Pray continuously and we're commanded and we are assured to get an answer. And then he makes an analogy for us. Or what man is there among you if his son asks for bread, will he give him a stone? Well, I've never met a parent that would do that, a father that would do that. When my kids were at home and they said, can you pass the bread? I didn't you know, go outside and throw them a couple stones. No one does that. Well, if you ask your father for something, you think he's going to give you something you're not asking for? No, he's going to respond. He's going to re not going to give you a stone. And then he goes on to say in verse 10, or if he asked for a fish, hey, Dad, did you pass the fish? Will he give him a serpent? Which is, in the, I think in the text, actually it represents an eel. <laughs> an eel. I used to catch eels by mistake. You know, I'd go out fishing, and I would say, man, i got a big one on my line. And then there would be this yucky, ugly, black, squirmy eel. And it was, I didn't want to touch those things. But I had to get the hook out of its mouth if I was going to keep fishing. So I would get that eel down on the you know, ground, and I would stamp on it. I'd have to pull, rip out its insides in order to get the hook out, because you didn't want to touch those things. I was happy for the fish. I'm willing to touch, grab the fish and get my hook out, because I want the fish. But guess what I don't want? I don't want the eel. So what we have here is no father would do that. And then he says, if you then being evil, in other words, you make all kinds of bad calls, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? In Luke's Gospel it says, how much more will your father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? So he could be talking about giving you things, like give us this day our daily bread, or he could be talking about giving you discernment through the Holy Spirit to either to judge, when to judge and when not to judge. We just don't know. The context seems like it may be dealing with, in Matthew's Gospel, he's using this teaching to say, hey, you need discernment ask God, he'll give you the ability, but we're not sure. Notice he says, how much more though? Doesn't he say that in verse 11? How much more will your father? Have we ever seen that before? I think so. Look down at verse 630. Chapter 6 and verse 30. Now if God clothes the grass of the field, which today is here and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? So we see this concept of more we saw that a couple other times in chapter 6 as well. So God is going to do much more for you than he does for nature. Now he could be talking about things, and that's fine, and we've learned that over in 631, 633, if you seek first the kingdom of God, and there's the word seek again, uh, and his righteousness, all these things will be added unto you. So he could be talking about things. So we're just not sure. But anyway, I wanted to show you that. Okay? So now we come to the bottom line. 
That's verse 12. Therefore, whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them. See, he's coming back to that big story. Uh, this is called the golden rule, isn't it? Well, therefore, whatever you want men to do to you, do to them. Do you want them to judge you? No, I don't want anybody to judge you. Then don't do it to them. You want them to forgive you? Yeah, I'd like them to then forgive them. See, this is the golden rule. Do unto others as you'd have them do unto you. So, you want them to show you mercy? Do you want them to come and lend you a helping hand? Do you want them to be on your side? Do you want them to pray for you? To encourage you? Yes, and that's what you should do to others. In other words, we should really look at how God treats us. He's merciful toward us. We should be merciful toward others. And we should take the action. Notice he says, do. You see that? Therefore, whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them. Take action. Take action. Do the loving thing. Do the compassionate thing. The golden rule. Now, Jesus was not the first person to teach the golden rule. Confucius taught the golden rule. And Hillel, who was much older than Jesus, but his contemporary, taught the golden rule before Jesus did. But they taught it negatively. Each one of them said, do not do to others what you do not want them to do to you. They taught it in a negative way. As far as we know, Jesus is the first ever to teach it in a positive way. If you teach it in a negative way, uh, do not do unto others, that means you don't have to do anything. See, that, that, that means you can be passive. Jesus turns it around and says you can't be passive. It's not what you don't do, it's what you do do. See, so he makes it positive. Therefore, whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them. Love your neighbor. You want your neighbor to love you? Love your neighbor. See, When you do what is best for others, you're ultimately doing what is best for you. It's a very interesting concept. So, anyway, I see that this is, this is the mark of being a follower of Jesus. So the people who do this are the real followers of Jesus, and the people who don't do this are the hypocrites. Boy, that's scary, isn't it? It's not that we do this in order to get saved. It's the people who are saved do this. People who think they're saved but aren't don't do this. They're the hypocrites. They're the ones who are saying, Ah, oh, we're so-and-so over here today. Ah, oh, did you see what they did? If I were them, I would... But uh, So this is the overarching principle that Jesus gives on how we're to rate, relate to brothers and sisters in Christ. If we see a brother or sister fall into a sin, what does Galatians say that we do? Yeah, we pick them up, we embrace them, we say, hey, how can we help you? You know, here's the community, we're here to help you, we're going to do whatever we want to do. It's only if they would totally 100% spurn you and say, get out of my life, I want to live my life as I want to live it, that there's church discipline. But that starts to reveal their hearts, doesn't it? They really don't want to be followers of Jesus. And there are times, yes, you may have to put someone outside the church. But that's, 
You only do that as a last resort, and then you do that for redemptive purposes. That maybe doing that last step will bring them to their senses, and they'll come back, and you forgive them. How many times? 70 times so. So this is the overarching principle for Christian behavior. Next week we pick up at verse 13, a very famous verse, that we enter by the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and there are many who enter by it. I will pick up there. Lord, we thank you that uh, we don't have to be inspectors, we don't have to be critics, we don't have to be judges. Uh, you do that. Uh, you who have perfect wisdom, perfect knowledge, a pure heart at all times, who know the truth, no error, who can look into our deep, the deepest recesses of our minds, you know exactly what the situation is.